Sat Nam. I'm Guru Prakarmakar. Guru Singh and I travel the world, loving to meet an ever-growing global community. We are appreciative of your vital role on this planet, for it is your willingness to be here and listen that calls forth wisdom, that activates our collective voice in service. Your questions bring forth the answers. For a wealth of information about who we are and what we do, please visit gurusingh.com. Bless you. So let's breathe ourselves here into this room and promise yourself, inside yourself, that you're going to use this evening's Kriya to establish a new level of normal, that you're going to establish a new level in the ratio between infinity and identity. Turn up the volume on infinity. Reduce the emphasis on identity. Medical science keeps saying, they've just discovered, they've just discovered. And all the while that they're just discovering, they tend to deny what yogis have been speaking about for thousands of years. Have you ever had somebody in your life that you'll tell something to and then they won't pay much attention to it? And then a year or two later, they'll come up with that idea? Yeah. And they'll feed it back to you as if it's never been known before. Have you ever had one of those people, two of those people, five of those people in your life? Yeah. Well, it's what most people do because most people have what's called selective hearing or interpretive hearing. They're not actually hearing what you're saying. They're interpreting what you're saying so that it matches what they're thinking. Either they're thinking you're wrong or they're thinking you're right. Can you turn off the uh, overhead fans? Or they're just thinking and producing noise while there's this conversation going on. And there's a, a word in Sanskrit in Gurmukhi called sunya. And sunya, S-U-N-I-A, sunya means deep sensing. They say deep listening, but it really is that you're not just listening with your ears. You're sensing with your whole being so that you actually get a sense of what's taking place rather than just hearing the words. Because sunya doesn't just hear the words because the words have definition. And definition has meaning and meaning has interpretation. We all interpret meaning differently. But inclination, indication, is something that is actually transferred through the tone of your words, through the tension in your skin and in your eyes, and through how your iris is dilating and 
focusing during the conversation, which all contributes to how you smell. Not just how you smell, but how you smell subtly. We actually pay more attention, but it's unconscious, to how we smell each other, how we sense each other through our olfactory. And we can sense each other at a significant distance through the olfactory, through the sense of smell. As a matter of fact, our sensory system works so well together that most of its brain capacity is housed in the gut because the gut is very distributed. You have the liver which is picking up one set of senses. You have the spleen which is picking up another set of senses. You have the gallbladder which is picking up a whole other set of, sen set of senses. You have the stomach which is picking up more. You have the small intestine which is the most sophisticated tissue in the entire body. They feel that they could probably reproduce any organ in the body except the small intestine. Because the small intestine has what your emotional body has, and that is layers upon layers upon layers that have different assignments. Your emotional body, you think of it as just a body that emotes, but it is actually a body that not only emotes, but also comprehends what is taking place around it. But because you use so much of it to express, you don't have enough of it left over to be impressed. And that's what a very advanced consciousness has. Example, dolphins have the most advanced emotional body of all mammals, not humans. Humans have one of the least advanced emotional bodies. As a matter of fact, our emotional body is, has been stagnant for about 10,000 years. And what shut it down 10,000 years ago was murdering. 10,000 years ago, we figured out how to, how to domesticate animals and slaughter them. When we first started slaughtering them, we called it a sacrifice. We made a big deal out of it to try to try to overshadow, you know. It's like when somebody is lying in government. They make a big deal out of the lie because if it's a big lie, it might become factual. But this happened about 10,000 years ago when we began to raise animals for slaughter. Because anytime you nurture something and then slaughter it, you destroy your sensitivity. Whether you have somebody else slaughtering it or you're slaughtering it, it doesn't matter because the frequency is passed on. So that's when the human emotional body stagnated 10,000 years ago. 
And that's why in today's world, the human body, the human emotional body is so stagnant that we are the only animal, we are the only animal that wages war. No other animal wages war. So does that make us the highest evolved creature on the earth? Science is beginning to think that that was just an idea that isn't true, like so many in today's world. That we are not actually the most highly evolved. That no animal has a collection of everything that's highly evolved, but like I just mentioned, the dolphin has the most evolved emotional body. If you cross a dolphin and you're another dolphin, that dolphin is going to be irate with you for just under 15 seconds. Fully expressive. Fully expressive of the emotion of rage for under, just under 15 seconds. My good friend, years and decades ago, he's since passed on, John Lilly, who invented the deprivation tank because he invented it so that they could study dolphins. It's kind of a cruel idea, but they, <laughs> they would put dolphins in a deprivation tank, right? He was a doctor, a scientist, and so they did what they did. But he studied them and he found that they would sustain positive emotions almost continuously. But negative emotions would never last for 15 seconds. Because negative emotions were so disruptive to their harmony. And their whole survival depended on harmonious behavior because they run in pods. They run in groups. They're a social animal. What is the human being? The human being is a social animal. But we are far from social. There's nothing social about social media. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's one of the least social of all forms of communication. Except if somebody just types in all caps. <laughs> then you understand what they're uh, meaning, no matter what they're saying. In order for us to gain back that emotional intelligence, we have to connect all of our neurological centers. The neurological center, which is highly developed in the head, the neurological center, which is highly developed in the heart, and the neurological center, which is highly developed in the gut all have to be interconnected. What we have in between the head and the gut, excuse me, the head and the chest, is the neck. And inside the neck there are two vertebrae. And these two, well there's more than two, but these particular two are very important because the atlas 
which is the number one, C1, which allows your head to go this way and this way. And the axis, which is number two, which is allows your head to go this way and this way. The atlas, which allows your head to go this way, is how you relate to infinity. The axis, which goes this way and this way, is how you relate to identity. In childhood, they call it the terrible twos. The word that a child learns to say is, in whatever language they're in, is the word no. Because when you say no, you identify yourself more readily than if you say yes. Because if you say yes, you eliminate your outline because you become inclusive. But when you say no, you create an outline because you become exclusive. A child in the age around two years old needs to become exclusive because for the next 10 years, they're going to have to develop their exclusivity until they reach puberty. And when they reach puberty, that exclusivity is supposed to dissolve into infinity. And that's why in puberty, the rite of passage was common amongst traditional cultures. In the Jewish culture, it was called bat mitzvah for a woman and bar mitzvah for a man. Now it's just a way of giving to the identity, right? Create the identity, ha 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 right? And in non-Jewish, it's just send them to the mall. <laughs> Which again is producing an identity, right? But it's not a very, it's not a very clear identity. It's kind of like a brand identity. Yeah. So you're identifying with a particular brand, which is an externalization of your character. But in the rites of passage, your identity would be dissolved. Because if you had an identity, you were in agony. In a rite of passage, the identity had to dissolve in order for you to access infinity. Because it was only through your connection to infinity that you were able to solve for your dilemma. You were out there, you had no food, you had no this, you had no that, you had nothing. It was just you and nature. And in order for you to merge with nature so that you could understand nature, so that you could work with nature, so that you could survive nature, you had to dissolve your individual identity. So it's the same thing that happens in evolution. You maximize your identity in order to surrender your identity when you are born into spirit. So you come into human existence. You learn how to balance on two legs for your first few incarnations, about 56,000 of them. And then you spend about the next 20,000 maximizing, maximizing your identity from one to another to another to another. And this is a very brutal series of incarnations. And you do it all over the multiverse. It's not just here on Earth. But the ones that are here on Earth are the ones that are brutal 
and the ones that are brutal usually garner the most power. And that's the dilemma that we're facing, because it was never a big deal until we overpopulated the earth. And now, if we don't want to face a massive die-off, we have to rise up to the occasion. We're the ones that have to teach by the example of dissolve your identity, create inclusivity, and the way we do it is by opening up that area between the head brain and the heart brain, and between the heart brain and the gut brain. And that which sits between the head brain and the heart brain is the neck, primarily C1 and C2 in the spine. And that which sits between the heart brain and the gut brain is the diaphragm and the solar plexus. And the diaphragm and the solar plexus, the solar plexus is the root of your emotional body, the main root of your emotional body. And so working with your emotions is essential to connecting your gut brain, which is all about connection. We feel each other through this center here. We circulate with each other through this center here. We question each other through this center here. So if this is the only center that we're relating to the world with, then we are just questioning the world. And so our task as yogis is to produce a capacity to link all of the neurological centers equally, the head, the heart, and the gut. And that way we can, two things, one, connect, circulate, and also be intuitive. Because if you're just connecting and circulating and you're not intuitive, you're dead. You are eaten for lunch. And that's why throughout the ages, it was always the highly evolved that were martyred. Hmm? No longer dying for the truth. No longer. It's a very patriarchal attitude die for the truth. Right? Create a martyrdom, then you're known through posterity. Posterity means post-terra, after the earth. In today's world, that is complete and utter nonsense. No longer applicable. We have to be completely balanced. That's why Yogi Bhajan, who could have taught any number of forms of yoga, chose kundalini. Because kundalini gives you that electromagnetic field to come in, not just as a sage, not just as a sage, but as a warrior sage. Not an aggressive, but a clearly intuitive. To know what's going on in the world at all times and be able to navigate it with wisdom. 
This was the Buddha's way, to know the world and navigate it with wisdom. Not to be just good in the world, but to be good in the world and effective in the world. Can you imagine? Can you imagine 20 to 30 million of us in 35 years, extremely intuitive, extremely accurate, extremely conscious, and extremely nonviolent, but not nonviolent in a way that we're getting the kicked out of us. Did you hear the bleep? Not that, not martyring and, you know, being wiped out. No, being so incredible. Like Lao Tse said, no offensive move, but such a good defense that it can't be beaten. He said, when the arrow arrives, don't be present. And the moment the arrow has passed, express your presence. You will befuddle the enemy to such a degree that the enemy will give up and bow to you. Do you understand that? It's not conceivable in today's world. In 15, 20 years ago, iPhones weren't conceivable. So give it a break. 20 years from now, imagine what you can be. And the meditation that you do to create your imagination is to meditate on your first breath and heartbeat, your initial breath and heartbeat, and your ultimate or your final breath and heartbeat. So we're going to start with that. You're going to be meditating your first heartbeat. Your embryo was three weeks old. You were less than that big. And you had a heart. So just close your eyes for a moment. <clears throat> Sit up. Get with it. Close your eyes. You were just like you are today, spiritually, but you were much different physically. Your vessel was just beginning. The heart and the lungs are both in the heart center. The heart is the first organ to be created. The lungs are the last ones to mature. Think of that relationship, the first and the last. The heart is all about rhythm. 
all about the beat. All about the beat. And now think about your last, your ultimate heartbeat. The last one of your life in this life. And your task is in between. And in between those two heartbeats, your heart will beat, depending upon the rate, anywhere from four to seven billion times. And while you're tuning into that heartbeat, Begin to tune in to your breathing through your nose. Gently pushing the belly out as you inhale. Pushing it in as you exhale. but doing it so gently that you hardly feel like it's you doing it. It feels strangely like it's being done for you. the noises of the city's life become obvious. The clock ticking, a person shifting, the AC blowing, and eventually you would even begin to hear your own heart beating. Yogis in the ancient times didn't have the paraphernalia around them, and so the only sound ultimately that they would hear would be the sound of their heartbeat. Maybe a bird or animal. And all of these meditations that last for 11 minutes and 31 minutes and 62 minutes were just heartbeats because there were no minutes in those days. Experience your heartbeat. Experience your breathing. 
the prescription was simple. Be aware of your heartbeat and your breath for 10% of your day. Breath stimulates the diaphragm, opens up the gut-brain, heartbeat opens up the heart-brain. Do it long enough for 10% of each day, and ultimately, your life is in perfect balance. Continue to feel that connection. Take hold of your knees and begin Sufi grind in a circular motion, breathing long and deep. Living your life in this consciousness, living your life with this awareness is essential. Bless you for joining us. Visit gurusing.com for an ever-expanding archive of lectures, videos, yoga sets, meditations, and more.